You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then He told the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. So he got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth. He said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Then John's disciples came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and they will fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth, because the patch pulls away and the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, Father, thank you so much for your grace and your goodness um, that we can come before you even at 6 o'clock p.m. and worship you together as a family. And I pray tonight, Father God, that your spirit will manifest himself uh, in our midst, uh, that you would make your son Jesus known, that you would allow us to hear uh, clearly and to see clearly for your namesake and glory. Would you capture our attention and allow it to uh, come under the submission of your word? Father, would you do in us what only you can do? Would you take my feeble words, Lord, and bring much fruit and much power out of the seeds that are sown? Speak now, Father, for your servants are listening. In the matchless, wonderful name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen. Well, I can uh, remember it like yesterday, going to a conference that InterVarsity put on. Uh, I was uh, sitting in a large auditorium, and there was great gospel music going forth and great preaching. I had strayed away from the faith that I had started out with as a a young man. I believe I gave my life genuinely uh, to the Lord at 10 years old. And older, as I got older in my teenage years, I began to stray. Uh, So friends of mine kind of stalked me and begged me to come to this conference with them as they were Christians and they saw uh, my desire to uh, walk more intimately with the Lord. And I, I went to this conference. And it was one sermon in particular where this uh, gentleman began to open up the word of God and to preach. And it was a simple, clear gospel message uh, pointing me back to the basics of Christianity and God's love for me. And it seemed like with every paragraph that went by, my heart became softer and softer. And God began to redirect my attention uh, back to the person and work of Jesus. And I remember sitting there uh, 
feeling all sorts of emotions. My mind began to run and to wonder if God still loved me after the way that I had, uh, I had essentially begun to, to backslide. And as he preached this big gospel, it, it felt like I was in the desert drinking an ice-cold cup of water. And my heart became revived and renewed. And that day, I recreated my life to Jesus. And I'm praying that today for some of you whose heart has become stale and cold and who the, the truths of, of, of Scripture and of Christianity have, have become a dull to you, that the Lord will use this simple message about the gospel to draw you back to himself, that you would be reminded of, of Jesus' great love for you and that you would see uh, how important it is for us as Christians to keep the main thing the main thing. See, I believe that this is what Matthew is, is after as he's writing this letter. Uh, Matthew has spent decades uh, carefully penning this masterpiece of a letter. He has spent decades organizing these events in Jesus' life, sometimes not putting them in the exact order in which they happen, in order for the, the reader to get these huge things and these huge uh, pieces of theology that he is throwing out. And Matthew's goal as he is writing this letter some five decades after the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the churches is to help these churches to rekindle uh, their heart towards Jesus, to come back to these powerful gospel truths by which we should never, never run away from. As some theologians have said, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, but rather it is the A through Zs. It's not the springboard by which we jump off of, but it's the whole swimming pool in which we are called to live. And some of us, we can lose sight of the good news of Jesus and what he's come to do. We can set our eyes on the things of this world and the things of this flesh, and we can believe and begin to believe that life is found in something else. We can find ourselves like David in Psalm 37 who sets his eyes on evildoers and on the wicked and the ways that they seem to be prospering. And then suddenly he comes to himself and he says, no, I will delight myself in the Lord for he will give me the desires of a heart. Or we can find ourselves like Asaph in Psalm uh, 73 as he pins this psalm about how he almost stumbled in the house of the Lord because he set his eyes on the wicked who seem to be flourishing in all of their endeavors only to come to the house of the Lord one day and realize that all he had is God and that all he needed was in him. Today, my prayer is that this text will remind us of who Jesus is and that it will serve us in the way that Matthew first intended it. Matthew is going to string uh, two stories together and, and, and a third uh, picture of who Jesus is as he continues to uh, remind the audience that Jesus is not only the Messiah who was foretold in the Old Testament, but Jesus is God himself. Uh, and Matthew has been showing us Jesus' godness by showing that Jesus has all authority on heaven and on earth. It's not by mistake that Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascends to go into heaven is going to be all authority, all power have been given unto me. This is Matthew's point throughout this gospel is to show that Jesus was a man who had peculiar authority because he was not an ordinary man. He was both fully man and fully God. 
He's shown us that he has all authority over disasters. He has all authority over diseases. He has all authority over demonic activity. And today, he is going to perhaps show us the most important part of his authority, which is that he has authority to forgive sins. He has the authority to forgive sins. And so we want to look at today how Jesus has the authority not only to forgive sins, but to summon sinners to himself and to make them into disciples. Matthew makes his point by telling us of a time where Jesus came into his own hometown. Now, the Bible elsewhere tells us that Jesus did not do many miracles in Nazareth uh, because they looked down on him and often said, is this not uh, Jesus, not uh, Joseph's son, the son of a carpenter? But perhaps one of the most important miracles he does in his ministry occurs in his hometown when he heals a paralytic of his paralysis. In verse 2, it says that this paralytic is brought to Jesus on a stretcher. Now, according to Mark's gospel, Mark gives us an even bigger detail in that he shows that this paralytic was brought to Jesus by friends, um, by his friends. Uh, this paralytic is going to uh, be uh, lowered down the roof of a home that they tear open uh, the roof to uh, to get this man who has a paralysis to Jesus. And what a picture of a friendship that is. Now, Matthew doesn't emphasize the fact that he's lowered on a bed through uh, the roof of a home to get to Jesus, uh, perhaps because he wants to focus more on the conversations that's going to take place. But I think that's just an important reminder and picture of what the family of God is to be. And I also think that it's an encouragement to all of us in here to remind ourselves that genuine faith and a growing faith in Jesus actually frees us up and allows us to no longer to be the center of our own faith, the center of our own lives. But it frees us up to be able to intercede for other people. These friends see a man who has paralysis. They hear about a, a rabbi who has healed people from paralysis, and they are so desperate for their friend, and they have so much faith that they tear a roof off a house to get their friend to Jesus. I mean, they were, they were about it. And we see in this text that they have this faith and they intercede on their friend's behalf. And the Bible says that Jesus sees their faith. Faith is an important theme throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And we've talked about faith a lot. And y'all know my favorite faith acronym. Faith is an attitude that says, for all I trust him. It's a disposition of the heart that clings uh, to Jesus Christ in belief. But I think a, another great definition of faith is that it is humble confidence in Christ Jesus. Christ is the object of our faith. Last week, we talked about the disciples' faith and how they ran to Jesus in the midst of a storm in fear because they felt like they were perishing. And last week, I told you that Jesus spoke to the disciples. And a lot of people read what he says to the disciples as an indictment, but why it was important for us to not see his words in the midst of that storm as not as an indictment, but as an invitation. Jesus looks at these disciples and he says, oh, ye of what? of little faith, or in other words, he calls them men of little faith. And some people see that as an indictment, but it's not an indictment. It's an invitation because just a few chapters later, 
Jesus is going to tell the disciples that all they need is faith the size of a mustard seed to move mountains. When Jesus called them men of little faith, he was inviting them to grow their faith, to exercise their faith, but he also was encouraging them to continue to bring uh, themselves to him in an authentic way so that he can continue to manifest his glory before them so that they can grow in their faith towards him. And the reason I say that today is because some of us are, are hurting today. Uh, some of us find ourselves in, in a weak state, and, and perhaps we are discouraged, and we say, if, if only I just had a little more faith, this X, Y, and Z would happen. And I want to encourage you to come to Jesus just as you are and exercise, plant that little bit of faith you may have in him and know that with that faith, he can calm any storm that is going on in your life. With that faith, he can move a mountain. And we see that this is prevalent here as these men bring their friend to Jesus, who is a paralytic, and Jesus says some strong words. He says, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's peculiar. Of all the things that Jesus could say to this man who has paralysis, it's interesting that Jesus mentions his sins. Uh, why not go directly into healing his paralysis? And the reason why Jesus does not go directly into healing his paralysis is because the point that Matthew is making here is that the deepest need that this man has is not his physical need. It's, it's not his need to walk, even though that is a real need. And Jesus is not ignoring his state and ignoring his, his pain, but rather Jesus is saying that the deepest need that you have is a spiritual need. And the same is true for you and me. Though all of us are hurting in some way as human beings, and all of us have a thorn in our flesh as, as human beings, our deepest need that we have is to be forgiven by God, is to no longer be sitting under the wrath of an almighty, holy God because of our sinfulness. And Jesus, in looking at this man and seeing his physical state, says, no, no, what you need to know, my man, is that you are forgiven of your sins. And what Jesus does when he speaks those words is, is he lets off a spiritual grenade in that house. And the religious leaders who are called scribes here, they, they pick up on what Jesus is doing and they are absolutely outraged. The text says that they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. And why is this blasphemy for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven? It's blasphemy because these religious leaders know that only God can truly forgive sins. This is why David prayed in, in Psalm 51, against you only have I sinned, O Lord. Now, did David sin against Bathsheba by taking advantage of her and abusing his power? Yes. Did David sin against Uriah, who was her husband, by having her killed? Absolutely. But what David was getting to was a deeper point. That if they forgave her, or if Bathsheba forgave her, but God did not forgive him, uh, then, then really it doesn't matter. That the person that he had and needed to be made right with was God himself. Every time we sin, and sin isn't just our deeds. Jesus shows this in Matthew chapter 5 and 6. Sin is a dispensation of the heart, and it's our thoughts as well. Every time we sin... 
We sin against a, a holy God who is completely righteous and completely just. And as a holy God who is completely righteous and completely just, he must exact justice against our sin. And so when Jesus speaks up and says, your sins are forgiven, these religious leaders, they pick up on that and they say, this is absolutely blasphemous. Absolutely blasphemous. Now, some would argue that the reason that Jesus says that his sins are forgiven is that because he uh, is in the state of paralysis uh, because of a specific sin that he committed. And that this man is suffering or sick uh, because of a specific sin. And that brings up the question, is all of our suffering connected uh, to our sin? And the answer to that is quite complicated. Is yes, no, and maybe. <laughs> yes, all of suffering finds its root in sin. Every bit of suffering that we have on this side of heaven is a result of Adam's rebellion and Eve's rebellion. Death entered into the world as a result of Adamic sin. So yes, but no. In the sense that not all sin can be traced back or all suffering can be traced back to sin. Jesus addressed this in John chapter 9 with the disciples when there was a blind man and Jesus pointed out to them that the reason that this man was, was born blind was not because of the sin of his parents or because of his sin, but for that very moment so that God could be glorified and healing him from his blindness. But then the third part of that answer is maybe. <laughs> the Bible lets us know that sometimes the reason we suffer is a result of our sin. But it's not just a result of our everyday sin. It's a result of habitual, intentional, flagrant rebellion. That's what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when the Apostle Paul warns the church of Corinth who is taking communion in vain, making a joke of the death of the Lord. He says, some of you are sick and have even died because you're not taking the, uh, the gospel seriously. That's what James gets at in James chapter 5 when he tells us to confess our sins to each other so that we can experience healing. Jesus tells this man his sins are forgiven, and that's not necessarily a connection to his paralysis, but it is a reminder that he invites us to always to examine our own hearts to make sure that we are doing our best through the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. These men, they consider Jesus to be blasphemous. And Jesus claims the authority to forgive sins in order to make the point that he is God. <laughs> Jesus can forgive someone as, uh, of their sins because he himself is God. But another proof in this text of Jesus' godness is found in verse 4. But the Bible says, perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? Only God can know the thoughts of man, right? Uh, it may be Mel Gibson or Taraji P. Henson. No, I'm just joking. Uh, Y'all saw that book, What Women Think, What Men Think, or whatever it's called. Eh? Only God can perceive and know the thoughts of man. Womp, womp, womp. All right, thanks for laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Only God. 
Only God can perceive the thoughts of man. And that's exactly what Jesus does. We read this. He says, why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk. But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, Jesus is God, so he's going to do both. He's going to forgive him of his sins, and he's going to say, get up and walk. But we know the forgiveness of sins is going to come at a cost. In order for this man's sin to be forgiven, and in order for your sins to be forgiven, and my sins to be forgiven, Jesus is going to have to die on an old rugged cross. Our perfect Savior is going to be treated as a common criminal. He is going to be betrayed by those he loved, stripped naked. He is going to be beaten and whipped, speared, left to hang and to die, though he knew no sin, so that we might become the very righteousness of God. Jesus asked this question probably in a rhetorical fashion, knowing that they would not know how to answer this question, and then to validate his authority on earth, he calls this man to get up and to take up his stretcher and to walk. Now, could you imagine being present and seeing Jesus with just a word speak to a man who came in as a paralytic and who was able to walk out as an able person. Could you imagine being that paralytic and and taking courage in the words of Jesus and finding the strength to not only get up, but to carry your mat? And and this is a a picture uh, not only of physical healing, but this is a picture of, of spiritual healing. The Bible says that we all were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together in Christ Jesus, that he spoke a word to our spiritual state and our spiritual souls that were dead and dry, and he told us to get up and to walk. And the key to the Christian life is never moving beyond what Jesus has done for us. And the reason why some of us are spiritually depressed and spiritually miserable is because we don't take enough time to to remind ourselves of the mercies of God. And this is what Paul calls the church of Rome to to do in in Romans chapter 1 through 11. He lays out this deep theology reminding us that we were justified in Christ Jesus, that we have been sanctified by his blood. And he says, therefore, by the mercies of God, present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's as a result of meditating on the, the finished work of Christ that we then are empowered to live as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing unto the Lord our God, thereby able to discern what is good and perfect, what is the good, perfect will of God. God's invitation for you today is to get back in tune with your own spiritual paralysis. It's to once again to appreciate what Christ has done for you. It's to remember that if it was not for the grace of God, where would you be? Let's remember the state of your soul where you were blind, deaf, and pitiful, where you were hopeless, but you heard this good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. 
to breathe life into your dead body, to give dry bones the ability to to live and to, to walk. It is in him that you live, that you move, and that you have your being. Notice how the crowds respond in verse 7. The Bible says, so he got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were all struck and they gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. And this may seem like a great response, but it's not a great response. This is the response of fans. This is the response of, of people who are effectuated in what Jesus can do, but not committed to his person. This is, this is a response to people who like to be entertained and amazed and, and wild. Um, but but who have not committed themselves to be disciples. I believe that Matthew gives us this next picture of his conversion in order to show us what a true disciple looks like. A true disciple is not one who is just awestruck and who uh, sometimes gives glory to God because of, of, of this emotive experience. A true disciple is one who is willing to give up something to follow Jesus. And this next passage, Matthew is going to share his own conversion story. And the Bible says that Matthew shares with this early church the fact that he was a, a tax collector, a, ta- a tax collector in first century Judea, a tax collector in first century Judea was not the job that you, that you wanted if you were a faithful Jew. A tax collector was a traitor to his people. A tax collector would be akin to a French or Dutch person who collaborated with the Nazi regiment and, and who gave over their people. A tax collector in first century Judea would be akin to an a, a African who uh, gave up his brothers and sisters to, uh, to the transatlantic slave trade in order to make some money. A tax collector was a vile individual in which most people look down with because they traded their people out for money. And Matthew has found freedom in the gospel so much so that he's able to write the early church and to say, y'all, this is my story. <laughs> this is my testimony. One day I was working, I was ripping off my people, and this man named Jesus who I heard about who had power this man named Jesus who I heard was filled with, with love. This, this man named Jesus who, who specialized not in, in second chances but in, in another chances. This man named Jesus who I expected to walk right beside me, to, to turn his nose up at me and to sneer at me like all the other rabbis. He stopped and he looked at me and he, he, he affirmed my, my, my dignity and he told me to, to follow him and I didn't know what to do so I I couldn't believe that he would extend this grace to me, so I just started following him. I I left my profession. I I left this money. I I left my guilt. I I left my shame, and I became a part of his his marching band for justice. This, This man named Matthew had experienced the scandalous, good, beautiful grace of God that says, as Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1, that God's arms are not too weak that he cannot save and his ears are not deaf that he cannot hear. And perhaps you're like Matthew today, broken and wounded 
thinking to yourself that there is no way that you can make yourself right with God because of all of your sin and all of your baggage and all of your turmoil and all of your your filthy thoughts. Perhaps you find yourself like Matthew. I want to let you know that the point of this text is to let you know that Jesus came for people like you. That Jesus is mighty to save, that he is not like the religious uh, elite, that he is not smug and turning his nose up at you, that he does not call you to, to fake it until you make it, but he is coming looking for the person who is, is, is weak and, and broken and, and poor in spirit and, and mourning and who is, 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 is tired of, of being tired and, and sick of their own self and, and who is ready to give up and to say, God, I need you. I can't save myself. I can't help myself. I can't, I can't even figure myself I need you, God, to to fill me with your love, to fill me with your grace, to to see me, to affirm me, to speak over me, to, to make me yours. Jesus was tired of the religious elite. He was fed up with these blind guides who claimed to be close with God but who couldn't even celebrate the, the, the healing of a paralytic who couldn't even celebrate that a man was forgiven of a sin, who couldn't even celebrate that those who were outcast and broken and hopeless were, were now finding a home in God. Jesus says, listen, listen to what he says. Look at your text, verse 12. Now, verse 10, Jesus goes uh, to Matthew's house, another synoptic gospel says, And while he's reclining at the table in his house, this word reclining was a word that was used for a fancy dinner. Jesus is at Matthew's house. Matthew is wealthy because he has probably more than likely cheated people out of money. And Jesus goes to his home. He's straight up chilling with Matthew, kicking it. And the Bible says that he was hanging out with many tax collectors and sinners, came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? These religious leaders are looking on and saying, why in the world is he spending time with, with people who are so messed up? And I just imagine in my holy uh, Rolodex, Rolodex of imagination, Uh, That Jesus, when he responded uh, in this next section, that he responds with a a caffeinated response. (laughs) He says, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. Now quoting the prophet Hosea in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. This is Jesus once again Uh, claiming to be God. He is applying a text that was centered around Yahweh to himself, and essentially he's saying, I came not for those who think that they have it together. I came for the broken. I came for the dope boys. I came for the prostitutes. I came for the thieves. I came for the, for the broken. I came for the self-righteous. I came for, for anyone who recognizes that they cannot work their way up to God, that their only hope for salvation is grace through faith. And Jesus did not come for those who are neat and who have it all together 
Jesus came for those who recognize, Lord, I'm, I'm a mess. And he says, that's okay, because in order to spell Messiah, you have to spell mess. I came for those who are a mess. The paralytic couldn't help himself. He couldn't muster up the strength to follow Jesus to walk, and neither could Matthew. <laughs> those who are saved are those who are unable to save themselves. Those who are saved are those who have received a gift righteousness, not a works righteousness. Those who are saved are those who understand that all their toil and their striving before a holy God is but a filthy rag. Those who are saved are saved by works, but it's not their works. It's the works of Christ. Perhaps God's invitation to you tonight, Christian, is to take a deep breath and to remind yourself that God is not impressed with you. And that God's love for you is not contingent upon your ability to do. The reason the gospel is good news is because of what Christ has already done. Christianity explained in three words is it is finished. Jesus has already made you right before God. We now live through that. Not to prove ourselves to God or to appease God to receive his love. No, that's, that's Buddhism. That's Hinduism. That's, that's, that's Islam. No, Christianity is saying that, that, that God has done what we could not do for ourselves. And we are completely free to be transformed by his grace. That's what Paul wrote to Titus for. For the grace of God has now appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Who is the grace of God? Jesus is the grace of God. He has now appeared and he has brought salvation to all men. It's a grace that saves and it's also a grace that sanctifies. It teaches us to say no to all ungodliness. Jesus here is going to have an interesting interaction right after this about fasting. And you may say, what does this have to do with the, the rest of this text? What this has to do is Jesus once again is, is about to point to his godness <laughs> by applying the Old Testament scripture, which was applied to Yahweh to himself. Really quickly, look at verse 14. Then John's disciples came to him saying, why do we the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? So these are our genuine disciples of John the Baptist. They said, we're trying to figure this out, Jesus. Why are y'all not fasting? Like, this is a, a tradition for us to fast a, a certain amount of times a week at a, certain, at a particular time, and y'all are not. Now, what's interesting is, is we know that Jesus values fasting, right? How do we know that? Because in John chapter 4, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And, and uh, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 4. We know that Jesus values fasting because in Matthew chapter 6, he tells the disciples, when you fast, don't fast like the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who put on garments of lament and who uh, look sad and pitiful. <laughs> but he says, put on some oil and, not, and don't let people know that you're fasting. So Jesus values fasting, but look at the point that Jesus is making. He says, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? Throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh, the God of Israel, 
spoke of himself in terms of being the groom and Israel being his bride. Essentially, what Jesus is pointing to is that he is God with us. And he's saying, my disciples, this is not time for them to to fast because the groom is with them. No good groomsman fasts on the day of of the groom's wedding. (laughs) It's not time to fast. It's time to feast. It's time to drink. It's time to party. And Jesus is saying, God is amongst his people. They recognize the time. It is time to party because God's kingdom has invaded this earth. And here's the point that Jesus is going to get at with these next two illustrations about the patch and about the wine. As Jesus is saying, listen, y'all, it is time for y'all to open up your hearts to the new thing that God is doing. It is time for you to leave religious ritual and and heartless sacrifice behind and to recognize that what God is after is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That what God is after is not mere intellectualism. That what God is after is not reading the Bible for the sake of, of, of knowledge that what God is after is not coming to church to check off a box in order to be a a good Christian, that what God is after is is not fulfilling these these images and these things that we have in our mind that's going to make us right before God and make us uh, pleasing to people, but what God is after is is the posture of the heart. What God is after for sojourn is for us not to be like the world in worldliness, but also to not be like the world that is posing as Christians, that is merciless, that thinks Christianity is about constant debates about high theology, that finds its identity in being right rather than being compassionate that is constantly trying to to hold on to this image of of good works in in order to to appease themselves in their own image and to build themselves up. No, what God wants to see is, is a people who is broken, who is seeking after his face, who is running to him knowing that he is mighty to save and he has come for the guttermost to bring them to the uttermost that he has saved us to live on mission for him, to move towards the brokenness, to be a people who recognize that we once were in darkness, but we have been brought into the marvelous light too, to proclaim the glorious, the glory by which we have been saved. God is after as a people who is after him and not his presence, and what he can give in his hand, but his presence. Who believe that intimacy with him is enough. Who believe my good and faithful servant is enough. Who believe that his words, you are my beloved child, is enough. Who believes that he sings over you daily and that he has called you and saved you for good works. Who believes that he's coming back for you and that he's going to make all things right again. What God is after is a relationship 
with you. Jesus said and referred to himself as the groom. And he says, you are my bride, the church. And whom Jesus marries and puts a ring on, he takes care of. He nourishes, he cherishes, he kisses, he delights over, he loves, he fulfills. God is calling us to come back to him, to reject this dead, ritualistic, workspace religion, and to, to bask in the scandalous grace that welcomes him into our presence and who says, I could care less about your past or less about the labels that you put on yourself. I have redeemed you. I have called you to be my child. Uh, It's interesting to me that Jesus looks at this paralytic this man who has been carrying, who's been carried on this stretcher, who probably has trauma just seeing a stretcher. I mean, if I've just been delivered from paralysis and I'm set free, the last thing I would want to do is to look at a stretcher. Jesus, Jesus says some, some peculiar words to this man. He says, pick up your mat and go back home. Hmm, peculiar. And I believe he does it for two reasons. One, I believe Jesus is saying that your paralysis is now your testimony. Y'all don't hear me. Your, Your brokenness is now your testimony. What I saved you from is now what I want to use back in your hood to show people that I am a God who is able to transform. You don't have to be ashamed of where you come from or even, or even how undone you are right now. He says the very thing that you, that you would find shame in is the very thing that I want to use for my glory. Pick up your mat and go back home. Take off them church clothes and remind folk of, of God's power. In your weakness. Second, I believe Jesus tells them to pick up that mat as a constant reminder to him of his power to deliver him. Because the Christian life is full of transforming moments and us going from one degree of glory to a next. And Satan would have you to believe that your best experience and richest experience in Christ has already happened. But the Bible tells us is that God has taken us from one degree of glory to another. That life in Christ becomes richer and richer. And I'm not speaking in some fancy, fanciful feelings, emotive way, but I'm speaking of us learning and growing in the death with and breath of God's love for us. So keep that mat with you to remind yourself that God is still working on you. And he still has more transformation for you. Every Sunday we take a meal together called communion. (laughs) And in many ways this meal was Jesus' mat. (laughs) Jesus gave it to the church in order to remind the church of how much he loved them. The bread represents his body, which was broken. The wine or juice represents his blood, which was shed. 
Here at Zoe Sojourn, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. And we do this every single week. And we have to fight as a church to not allow this to become a meaningless ritual. This is an opportunity for us to preach the gospel to ourselves, to taste this bread and this wine, and to remember with the, the, the taste buds that God has given us that he is good and that he loves us. This is a chance for us to come back to him together as a family. So Christian, as we come, let's feast. Those of you in the front, you can come to the front for communion. The back, you can go to the back. Gluten-free communion is over to my left. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn in Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.